Welcome to Calvary Chapel Sebastian Podcast. We hope that you're blessed by this message. Well, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and guest services will put a Bible in your hand tonight. We're going to be in two chapters, Genesis 42 and 43. We're going to kind of not cover every scripture, but we're going to go to the main points, and so raise your hand if you need a Bible. And we want to welcome everybody online tonight who's listening to us. By the way, I hope you got a cup of coffee out in the lobby, and if you're home, grab a cup of coffee And uh, as we get into this teaching And so as you're turning to chapter 42 and 43, um, we like to always give a a recap, maybe you missed last week, and so I have it up on the screen, the one takeaway that we've learned that when we realize that God has a plan for every one of our lives, and, and we learned, and you see it, that God's perfect plan, by the way, God's plan for you is perfect. No amens, okay. So take that up with God. God's plan for our lives is perfect. Look what it says. God's plan is, thank you, thank you. God's perfect plan is always three things. One, it's in order, it's on time, and it's precisely carried out. And as we look in the life of Joseph, we are absolutely seeing this. And so tonight, we're gonna pick up on how God's plan how God's perfect timing, and how God precisely carried this out. And so we saw a little bit of that last week, and now we're going to watch more of it come into fruition. We've got a couple topics that we're going to pick up from this text and examine our own hearts and how we deal with those things in our own lives. And so if you're listening online and and maybe uh, you... uh, um, didn't weren't here or you didn't hear the teaching or, or we have a podcast and uh, you can get that on Spotify or Apple Play and you can catch any of our services on that. So we hope you subscribe to that and share that with your friends. All right. All right. Now I want to catch you up. I see some new faces. And so um, I'm not going to go back to Genesis 1. We'll be here forever. Right. But we've been in Genesis a while. But I do want to catch you up as to what you need to know about uh, chapter 42 and 43. So here's what's going on. Joseph is now the ruler over uh, everything. Basically, there's a famine. Joseph's dream, uh, uh, Pharaoh's dreams were interpreted. Seven years of good stuff, seven years of nothingness, right? And so the, the dream, Joseph was able to get out of prison because he interprets dreams, and he was able to tell Pharaoh what that was all about, okay? And then in addition to that, because nobody in the land, not the, not the sorcerers, not anybody that did witchcraft or the wisest men in the kingdom, but that Joseph was the only one, because of that, he was put into a second place position, kind of like a vice president in another country. And he was over everything. He was over, uh, he was given uh, an order to build up for the whole uh, country of Egypt and, and really the, the whole world you'll see in the text. And so Joseph was... Uh, challenged to uh, take advantage of the seven good years, kind of like our retirement, right? 401 retirement. Take advantage of the good years because maybe there's seven years that aren't going to be so good, right? You see our hand. We've been through that. It's like a yo-yo. And this is what we see with the grain and the supplies. And so he's in charge of this, right? And so he's over even the distribution now. In this chapter 43 or 42, we're now about two years into famine, okay? So we've moved pretty quickly from 41 to 42. So we're in two years into this famine. 
And Joseph is over the distribution of all the grain and all the resources for when all of Egypt would come. And you notice that in chapter 41, the very last verse that we covered in chapter uh, verse 57, it says, in all the what? All the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. And so we don't see in the text that Joseph is panicking. It's not like you go through Chick-fil-A on a, sun, on a Saturday night right before they close and order 50 you know, Chick-fil-A sandwiches for your football team, right? And, and they start panicking. No, he's been prepared. He's diligently followed what God told him, and he's diligently following what, what Pharaoh has told him to do. So he's been obedient. And because of Joseph's obedience in doing what God said, the people of Egypt get the blessing. And we're going to see that his family is also going to be brought into this. Now, remember, Joseph's family is in Canaan, okay, which is quite a distance from where Joseph is at. And we're going to see that Joseph's family is also experiencing the famine. It's kind of like the toilet paper shortage. Was there anybody that was not in their car and, and, and following, you know, Facebook, trying to go find a, a shipment of toilet paper back in the day, right? And so, yeah, and we still have a closet full of toilet paper if anybody needs any. And, you know, we hit like a gold rush at midnight at Dollar General. No one knew about it, didn't get on Facebook yet. But this is kind of what it's like. Everybody was experiencing this shortage. And so even Joseph's family was experiencing this shortage. And so this is where we're going to enter into um, into this story. Now, before we do this, I want to take note, and you've seen this slide before, but take a look at it again for those of you that haven't seen this. I want to remind you that in, in chapter 37 of Genesis, this is where we see Joseph, who was 17 years old. He was a teenager, and he was sold as a slave at 17 years old, and you see that here we are, are 28 years old when he interprets dreams for Pharaoh. This is where he gives them what's going to happen. And then 30 years he interprets and he becomes second in command. And then look at what's happening here in chapter 42. He is 37 years old, end of years plenty. This is, this is right in the middle of the famine. So what can you conclude from that? He is now 39 years old. 39 years old, when his family is going to come get the grain. And this is what we're going to see. So, when, so those of you that are, are math uh, calculus majors, he has been away from his family and has not communicated with them for 22 years. 22 years that he has carried the weight and the burden of his rejection, sold as a slave, but God had a plan for his life, hasn't he? We've been seeing that. God had a plan. And we're gonna see how God's plan all along will bring a blessing to everyone in this story. And this is why I wanna remind you, reflect on your life right now. Where are you in your walk? What is going on in your life? And I want to encourage you. This is why it's God's plan. God has a plan. God understands where you're at. He knows how you got there. He's behind the scenes working on your behalf. Why? Because God is a loving God. His promises tell us that he will provide for all of our needs. Remember, he says, look at the sparrows in the field. Would I not provide so much more for you? God pays attention to every detail in your life. 
And so what we need to learn how to do is we need to learn to have increased faith. We need to learn how to have increased trust that maybe we're not understanding why we are where we are or what God is doing in our lives. But I want to assure you, and this is the whole takeaway from this part three series, is that God is in every detail of your life. And I want you to take comfort for that. And I'm preaching to myself uh, many times. So as we open this up, we're also going to see that God's plan is about to reunite this entire family. And so I thought it went black out. So in verse uh, chapter 42, you're in verse 1 of Ask You to Turn There. And let's start reading this together. It says, when Jacob, now I want to stop, Jacob is the father of Joseph. And remember, uh, Joseph He's the father of Joseph, and, he, and Jacob is the father of 11 of his brothers. They talk about one sister, but she's kind of like there once, and then we never hear about her ever again. But this is Jacob, and this is, this is the father of 12 sons. And it says, when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, now pay attention to this, he says, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. I, I had you pay attention to that, that question. It's an interesting thing to say, isn't it? Why do you keep looking at each other? That's an interesting statement from his father. So in order for him to say that, there's got to be a weird look. Cindy, give John a weird look. Go ahead, give him a weird look. John say, why are you giving me that weird look? <laughs> oh, that's the same look you got earlier? Okay. <laughs> and, and this is what these brothers are doing. Now, now, why? Why did his father, why did their father pick up on this? Well, I'll tell you why. Because 22 years ago, Joseph brother, Joseph's brothers kept their sin that they committed against the family a secret. There's a secret in the midst what was their sin? Here's how this goes. Remember? Hey, Dad, your youngest son is dead. Remember that? Uh, and, and, and yeah, so some kind of ferocious animal has devoured him. And surely, I'm, I'm talking what the scripture said, surely he has, he has been torn into pieces. You remember, you remember that, right? And then to top it off, they say, oh, and, and by the way, Dad, the jacket you bought Joseph well, here it is, it's bloody and torn apart, and you can take that back too. And this is what has happened, and this is, this is what happened. It's that sin, it's that secret, that story that they made up, and it's their father who has believed that the son has been dead for 22 years. And here's the key. This whole time in their family, they know that Joseph wasn't dead. Now, they didn't know he was alive in Egypt. But they knew that, he, that there's a good chance he wasn't dead. And yet they let their dad mourn for 22 years. And so you can imagine this. If you're concealing a secret, a sinful secret, and your dad says, and by the way, they know they sent him. The last time they saw their brother, where was he off to? Egypt. Egypt. So when dad says, hey guys, you're going to go to Egypt, can you imagine what kind of a trigger that set them in. That's a trigger word. Egypt, they're freaking out. They're paranoid because they know their sin in Egypt. 
And it's kind of like when I thought about us, when, and I'll talk a little bit about this as we get through the scripture, but it's kind of like, what triggers you? Are there past sins that trigger you? Are there past sins that trigger me? Are there, are there memories that we've had of a, of a bad time where we were un, unsaved, we were unbelievers of Christ, and we don't have good memories about that? And then it's kind of like, like school reunion. If you didn't know the Lord, and how many, I don't know, some of you, let me, let me see if I can divide the church. How many of you like to go back to your high school reunion? Raise your hand. One, great. Because this is recorded, I'm not going to pick on you, but I feel like we're family and I could, but I'm not. I, I, I could say you probably had a great high school, you probably had wonderful memories, and you probably got along with people and you were voted most confident. And, but, you know, it's, it's those people that experience, it's those times in their life, well, I'm just, yeah, I'm joking with you, you know that. But it's, it's those people that when they enjoy those times of their life, of course they want to go back and see people. But for many, it was a season where it was a dark time of their life. High school was a dark time. And, and if you were like me, an unbeliever in high school, you probably aren't too proud of some things that you did. And the last thing that, that maybe you want to do is you want to go back to Egypt, back to Egypt high. And you want to go back to the, see those things. And you go back to your shame, back to your embarrassment. Back now, now, if you were a rock star football quarterback and you didn't gain 100 pounds or 400 pounds, you're probably going back because you're going to relive that glory. You're proud of that time. But what we see in this story is that these guys aren't proud. They know there's something very terrible in Egypt and they're going to have to face it. And it's a trigger word. They're not going to go. This is why they're looking at each other going, I can't believe dad's going to send us to Egypt. Isn't that where our secret sin, our brother could be? And so they get paranoid it's unconfessed sin. And so look at verse 3. It says, then ten, the, then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. Now I have another graph of this family dynamic so you can understand what's going on here. This is Jacob. Jacob had four wives and these are the sons that he had. <clears throat> these are the 12 sons. Notice if you're looking at this through the eyes of Jacob, Jacob, Joseph is dead. He's already lost. He, and by the way, Rachel was his favorite wife. And, and the, the text told us that. He's already in his mind lost Joseph. He's lost one son and he's mourning. Look where Benjamin is. Benjamin is the youngest son. And so you can understand this text. He's like, you can go to Egypt, but you're not taking Benjamin. This is a father who is mourning the deep loss of a son. and He's not willing to sacrifice another son to anything, right? He's holding on to that, to that son because it is his youngest son. Probably reminds him a little bit of Joseph, and so he holds on to it. Look at verse five. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. And now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, check this out, what'd they do? They bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Now, when we talk about God's plan, I want you to see how precise God's plan is here. 
And, and I want you to think of a time in your life where God was specifically and precisely ordaining your feet for such a time, for such a moment. I have a ton of stories where I've seen God move in my life with specific and precise ways that he identified that he was in charge and he was walking. I don't have time tonight. I hope you have those moments. And if you do, I hope you have them journaled, that you see God's plan specifically laid out, that you recognize it. And this is what Joseph is going to see here. Look, look what you remember when Joseph first discovered how God would choose to speak to him. Do you remember? He spoke to Joseph through dreams. Remember back in the Old Testament, we didn't have, we didn't have the word. We didn't have uh, the Holy Spirit as of yet. So oftentimes, God would speak to specific leaders who he had a calling and a purpose on their life. And he would either speak to them audibly or he would speak to them in visions, which was like real visions, like you're sitting here and all of a sudden a white sheet drops down and you get a message from the Lord, or he spoke to him through dreams. So uh, Joseph first learns now that God is going to be communicating with him specifically through dreams. And so um, these dreams, by the way, were true prophecy from God because of what is yet to come. And so not only would God communicate, but God would be communicating truth to Joseph. And he knew that. Now remember, Joseph had how many dreams? Two, remember, that he told his family. And, and so what did, he, what did God communicate to Joseph? Let me refresh your memory. I have it up on the screen. This is, this is the cool part of God's precise plan for Joseph. This is all the way back in 37, verse six. Listen to this dream. This is Joseph talking to his brothers now. Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of what? Grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine. And what did they do? They bowed down. Now, this didn't make the brothers happy. This is what got Joseph sold into slavery but do you understand what God just communicated to Joseph 22 years ago from the moment we're at in 42? God gave him a prophecy of what his life would be like. Now, we know that Joseph couldn't fathom that. doesn't say whether Joseph believed in that, but he knew that that dream was given to him by God. It probably didn't make sense. But when God communicated to Joseph, he revealed two truths about this dream. And I think this is important that we understand this. Number one, he, would, he communicated how Joseph would be somehow in authority over his family one day. That is very clear because I'm going to tell you what his mom and dad did when he had his second dream. The second truth was is that God, notice, God specifically used grain in the dream as a significant sign. Isn't that cool? Some of you are Bible nerds. That's cool, isn't it? It's like, why is grain out of all things in, in that dream 22 years ago? Well, it was a sign that God had given him. And basically that sign was going to be, it's going to have to do with grain and you're going to be in authority over it. And so this is how God spoke prophetically to Joseph. And that's going to be a big deal when we see God has to heal Joseph's heart once his brothers get to him and ask for grain. But look what, um, look what uh, Joseph's father, Jacob, how he responded to the second dream that Joseph had. Look what he says. He says, oh, I'll read it to you. What is this dream you had? 
will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? And so we see that what was questioned and what was mocked 22 years ago by, by Joseph's family, it's now becoming a reality for Joseph and it's gonna be a reminder to the entire family. And that's what this chapter is all about. Why, was, why did this happen? Simply because it was God's plan. This is what God had planned from the very beginning. Look at verse seven. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan? And they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. And then he remembered his dreams about them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. Look at how they responded in verse 10. No, my Lord, they answered, your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. But here's the key. Look what they say next. Your servants are what? Your servants are honest men, not spies. Now let me ask you a question, church. Were they honest men? No? Not 22 years ago. Now let me ask you. Are you different today than you were 22 years ago? Yeah. Is it, is it a possibility that maybe they're honest now? Yeah. We all change. Hopefully we're changing. Anybody the same as they were on, on January 1st, 2021? No, we're different. Hopefully we're different, right? Hopefully we're wiser. Hopefully we're more like conforming to the image of Christ. And so why would this not be fair for just Joseph to be thinking, look, that was 22 years ago. Now my brothers are in front of me and they're saying, oh, we're not those guys we were 22 years ago. Praise God, right, for our lives. And he says, well, maybe, maybe he's thinking they are honest, right? So this is what's going to start happening. He's going to start testing them. He's going to start questioning them. I think he would be no different than you and I, right? Have you ever been in a bad relationship? Have you ever been hurt? Have you ever been done wrong? Have you ever held on 22 years of something that happened to you? I want to, don't answer that. <laughs> but because we've changed, we have to look at this story through the lens that maybe they've changed. And if you're in Joseph's shoes and you've been deeply hurt, you're going to be a little bit protective, aren't you? Notice he didn't say, hey, let's get together. Hey, I'm Joseph. I'm your brother, remember me? Let's go to Giuseppe's and get some Italian. He didn't say that. See, he was cautious. You wanna know why? People that get hurt put up protection. They're cautious. Maybe with the same person, but maybe they're not as apt to go into relationships more freely and trusting. And this is what we're gonna see with Joseph right now. And so Joseph, he understands that they're here, and they say, well, well, no, we're honest men. Now, maybe not in Joseph's eyes yet, and maybe not even in God's eyes, 
But let me ask you a question tonight. Do you feel that the general world has been honest in the last two years? <laughs> All right, you already answered that. Do we see an increase or truth in our world or an increase of lies? Yeah. Right. So we're kind of cautious now, aren't we? We don't believe everything we hear, do we? We research it ourselves, don't we? Yeah. Because why? Maybe we, our trust is not there like it used to be. Well, this is no different for this relationship with Joseph. Now, church, no matter how you answer that question, I want you to understand that you and I are called to be different when it comes to truth. And the reason why we're called to be different is because we are Christ followers. We are born-again believers. If we've received Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, then we're born-again believers. And truth should matter to us. Truth should be a part of our character. Truth should be who we are. Now, I'm not saying that we're always truthful. And I'm not saying that we fabricate that football score on Friday night or how fast they ran or, or how big that fish was or how much ice cream I didn't eat. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, is that if we're going to call ourselves believers, we need to be different than what we have criticized the world in the last two years to be. And God expects us to do this as well, right? And so let me ask you this question. If you agree with me, I see your head's nodding, then, then let me ask you this. What keeps you and I honest? God. I love it. Yeah. God keeps us honest. What keeps you and I honest with ourselves, God, and those around us? Maybe for some it's a reverential fear of the Lord. But I think, the, I think that when we become believers, and I love talking about these two words, the Holy Spirit, I think the role of the Holy Spirit plays a significant role in the life of, of a believer and a Christ follower tonight. I think one of the ways that we stay honest and speak truth is because the Holy Spirit is in us. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. I have it up on the screen. The Holy Spirit is given to us to keep us in short account with the Lord and with the people. Now, maybe some of you are going, well, that's strange. How does the Holy Spirit do that? You ever tell a lie? All of us. Do you, ever, do you ever tell a lie, and you don't mean to tell a lie, but you tell a lie, and, and then you realize that you told a lie? What do you do with that? Do you just kind of like forget about it and go, hmm, hope I don't get held to that? Or do you go, hey, the other day I was in a conversation with you, and I don't think I, I was honest. I don't think I was truthful, right? Do you ever tell a lie, and then someone will look you square in the eye and they'll go, Really? Really? And they look at you like, you're lying to me. <laughs> right? Now we're getting into marriage counseling. <laughs> I put it this way. You see it on the screen. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The role of the Holy Spirit is to keep us honest. The role of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of our sin. Convict us when we do things against our Lord. Look at John 16, 18, it says, the spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. John 16, 13, the spirit guides us into all what? 
God has given us the Holy Spirit so that we will speak and walk in truth. Never perfect, but the Holy Spirit never leaves us. The Holy Spirit is always, uh, always performing his duty in us to convict us when we are doing things that the Lord says, uh-uh, that's not to be a part of your life. That's not how I want you to act. And that's that, that's that conscience that we have. And so remember, Joseph was a man who followed God. He expected his brothers to do the same. He was a godly man. God blessed him because of it. But look at how Joseph responds to his brothers with this lie statement that they just said, oh, we're honest. Look what he says, first word. What? No. No, he says to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected, verse 13. But they replied, your servants, were 12, your servants were 12 brothers, the son of one man, well, that's truthful, who lives in the land of Canaan, that's truthful. The youngest is now with our father, that's truthful. And one is no more. Is that truthful? No. Now, if you want to, you want to get an attorney and kind of look at that statement? Well, one's no more. Well, what's that mean? No more living with the family? No more meaning with the family? Or no more like he doesn't exist, right? And remember, they're, he, they're saying this to Joseph. This no more character, this is Joseph. Can you imagine if you're in Joseph's shoes what you want to do? Holy Spirit, restrain me because I'm about to just go off on these guys, right? And so he's wrestling with this. And look, what, look at verse 13. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, we just read 13. But, but that, I want to point out, is the second lie that he tells them when they meet with him. And so Joseph knows that there really is one more. Now, I want to make a point here. I don't believe that by Joseph questioning these guys, I don't believe that he's trying to be ugly. I don't even think that his heart is trying to be revengeful, you know, getting vengeance, right? The Lord says, vengeance is mine. I really don't believe this is what I'm gonna what we're pulling out of this text. I don't think he really wants to harm uh, his his brothers. I really don't even think that he wants to pay back his brothers or do harm to their family. He knows there's a famine, and he knows God's given him authority that he could feed his family. What I believe is that Joseph is is engaging these questions with his brothers in a conversation to examine if their hearts have changed. He's asking questions because he knows truth. They don't know he knows their story. And he's trying to find out where's their heart? Where's their heart? Because I'm dealing with 22 years of not being with you. And now you're in front of me. And so he's standing at the crossroads right now between forgiveness and trust. And I believe that God has been already working on the forgiveness side of his heart but I think he's inquiring to say, can I trust these guys again? Because I've been so deeply, deeply hurt. He's trying to see if they're still more concerned about covering up their sins after 22 years or if they can finally confide and confess in this man that stands before him. Remember, this man that his brothers are standing in front of, he can starve them to death or sell them grain. He can sustain their lives through this famine. And remember, they don't know who this man is. And so look at verse 14. Joseph said to them, 
It is just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be, there's that word again, tested, to see if you're telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. And on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, he's gonna give them another chance here. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households, but you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. And this they proceeded to do. So this is interesting, isn't it? How many of you are shaken in the brother's boots? Because he's saying bring your youngest. So it could apply to Benjamin, right? Benjamin's at home. But in reality... Joseph knows what he's saying because really they want, they want him to bring that 12th brother. And so he's literally forcing them to face their sins. Now let me ask you a question. Is Joseph forcing them to face their past sins because he hates them or because he loves them? you really believe that? When we think of God and we think of our personal relationship with him when we have unconfessed sin and God wants us to confess it and he wants us to deal with it isn't it interesting how God does that he speaks to you he speaks to you maybe it comes up in a teaching here on Wednesday or the weekend and God convicts you that's why we're here for the word we're changing we're growing we're being convicted God's word is is applicable for every area of our lives, right? Sometimes God corrects us when you hear a pastor teaching. Sometimes God corrects you when you hear something, you get in your car and there it is again, the same topic. And you know, you know, something deep inside you, it's called the Holy Spirit, FYI. And, and it's the Holy Spirit saying, I want you to deal with this situation in your life. It's not what I want for you, right? And sometimes when God does that, could be, I don't know, God's God, could be, it could be a week, could be a month, could be a year, could be two years. But eventually, when God's softly and gently and lovingly trying to get us to address this unconfessed sin in our lives, sometimes God gets impatient and he goes, okay, now I gotta turn some heat up. And sometimes he'll do what he'll do. Where when we had a choice to come to him freely, then sometimes he goes, now I'm going to force you to deal with that sin. And so Joseph is a great reflection of how God is in our lives. We see Joseph is being very kind here. He didn't kill him. He didn't keep him. He's like, yeah, all of you go home. We'll keep one. Bring, bring your younger brother. It's all good. If what you're saying is true, it's all good. He knows it's not the truth. And I love how gentle he is. He's patient. Why? He don't hate them. That's why I say I think God was already working on his forgiveness before they showed up to buy grain. He's doing it because he loves them. He wants to restore a relationship with him. But he knows that if he cannot get truth out of them, and if he cannot trust them, he can love them, but he can't be in a healthy relationship with them. 
I'm speaking to somebody tonight in that area. You love them, but it takes a whole lot longer to trust them, doesn't it? And if you love and trust somebody fully, then it's a very good relationship, isn't it? It's a joyful relationship. And I believe that Joseph wanted that for himself. He wanted it for his dad. He wanted to be with his younger brother. And he wanted to be 22 years behind him from suffering this stuff. He loved him. And so this is why he sends them off. Now, I think in verse 21 that we're about to read, this is a great picture of the Holy Spirit working and doing the convicting of his brother's hearts, which needed to take place, right? In order for a relationship, it's got to it's be from both sides. It's got to be both people wanting that relationship or it'll never work. And so we see the Holy Spirit in verse 21, and this verse is probably the first sign in 22 years that Joseph's brothers have begun, hear me, to allow their conscience to be seared. They're allowing it. They're going to have to address this in the trigger town, Egypt. And so guilt, we also see that guilt is setting in for maybe the first time that they actually have a conscience about what they did and it was wrong. Look at verse 21. And they, the brothers, said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. And that's why this distress has come on us. And what I believe we're seeing here, as I said, is guilt and condemnation. Now, I have something up on the screen. I want you to write it down. This is very, very important. And when you read it, you're going to go, what? I'll explain it. Write it down. Guilt is a condition that can be used by both God and Satan. Okay? All of us have probably experienced guilt at some point in our lives. But I want you to notice that what was up on that screen, I didn't say that guilt is from God, did I? Nor did I say that guilt is from Satan. What I said is, is that God will use guilt for our good. And Satan will always use guilt to hinder, block, or discourage us from following God's plan. And this is how guilt can be used in a right way or in a wrong way. And I want to start with the right way, okay? So you may say, well, Pastor David, how does God use guilt in my life? What does that look like? Well, here's how he uses guilt in our life. I'm going to say in the life of a believer for right now, right? All right? Or, or someone that the Holy Spirit's coming alongside to woo them to receive the Lord as their personal Savior, right? So the Holy Spirit will do that. But God uses guilt to give us a clear path to repentance. You see, without any guilt, without any shame, without any, 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 any um, distress on us, there's no repentance. We feel good about ourselves. There's no conviction from the Holy Spirit. Think about, think about when you weren't saved, when you weren't a believer. When you and I did something wrong, I didn't lose sleep over it. It didn't even sear my conscience. I, I, didn't, I didn't care, right? My, do I have the right crowd or are you all just saved from... Do you relate to that? Right. 
We may feel guilty because morally it was something not right or against the law, but we didn't have the Holy Spirit in us as unbelievers to say, "Uh uh-uh, right? And so God often uses this feeling of guilt so that it would draw us to repentance. You see, when we sin against God, you know this, when we sin against God, the Holy Spirit reveals our sin to us. We have two choices, don't we? We either repent or we cover it up and we ignore it and we act like it didn't happen. You say, well, do believers do that? (laughs) Yeah, sometimes we do. This is why God would use guilt. If we cover it up, then our conscience begins to work on us. We feel guilty after a while. We become convicted. We feel weighed down. And like Joseph, we feel distressed over something. Maybe we're anxious or maybe we become paranoid. Why? Because we're afraid our sin's gonna be found out. You know, the Bible says that our sin will find us out. The other verse says it'll be shouted out off the rooftops. You know, I'd rather much deal with sin between me and God in a personal way than to have my sin on that screen. And that's what I'm talking about, God being patient with us. He's patient. He loves us. God didn't design us to carry guilt and condemnation. God is for us. Remember, he's not against us. And he has gone to great lengths by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to demonstrate how much he does love us and how much he gave his son for our sin so that we wouldn't have to walk in guilt. God did his part. The question is, church, are we willing to do our part all the time and quickly so that we don't have to be riddled with guilt? Here's a great verse in Acts 3.19. You see it says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that the times of, here's that word, the times of refreshing may come from the Lord. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, you know this, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all righteousness. You see that refreshing that that verse is talking about, church? That refreshing is peace that we receive in our hearts when we know that we are forgiven. When we're heavy burdened and it's lifted off of us because we simply acknowledge our sins and ask God to forgive us, relieving us of that guilt. Romans 8.1, therefore there is no condemnation for who? for those who are in Christ Jesus. God didn't design us to be condemned. God designed us to be forgiven. So that's how God uses guilt in a healthy way to draw us to repentance. The second thing I want to talk to you about with guilt is Satan uses guilt in an unhealthy way, you say, well, what does that mean? Let me ask you a question. What is Satan's goal, main goal for every believer in this room tonight? John 10.10, 10, three things. I heard it. Steal, kill, and destroy. You see, that's, that's Satan's plan. Instead of guiding and leading us back to God, Satan uses guilt to cause us a feeling Hear me, it causes us a feeling of separation with God. Like not in our minds, like we don't lose our salvation. Like Jesus died on that cross for our sins, present, past, and future. Okay? But Satan loves, remember, what is he? A father of lies. 
right? He can't speak truth because there is no truth in him. And his main thing is that he wants to use guilt so that in our minds we feel separated from God. Now, does sin separate us from God? Yeah. But confess sin brings us in the presence of God. And here's what are, you'll hear this. Here's some common statements that people make when they listen to Satan in this area. One, they're feeling guilty, okay, because they haven't confessed their sin. Here's some of the statements you may hear. I've done too much. God would never forgive that sin. These are believers to actually think this sometimes. Well, I've done too much this time. God can't forgive that sin. He, for, can, give, he can forgive all these other sins, but he can't forgive that one in my life. I, I've gone too far. Or how about this? I'm unworthy of God's forgiveness. Or how about this? God is punishing me for what I've done. Or how about this? I've asked for forgiveness, but I still feel guilty. Satan is an accuser. He's a liar. He's a father of lies. And through guilt, he wants to convince us, hear me, that God's grace is beyond our grasp. And church, that's not the God that we know, is it? God is a loving God. Here's the problem, and, and I want you to hear me out. Here's the problem why I believe that Satan is a master at using the feeling and condemnation of guilt in a believer's life. Here's how this goes. All of us struggle. We have weaknesses. We have a bullseye. We, we, know, we know that we have sins or temptations that if we follow through with that temptation, we're going to sin against God. There's not one person in this room that does not fit in that category, I promise you. Because what is sin? It's, it's, it's the pleasure and cravings of the flesh. And so I'm not just talking about sexual sin. I'm talking about just sin. Could be, could be envy, could be jealousy. But here's the problem how Satan really is a master of using guilt in a believer's life. We sin against God. We know that we are to come boldly to the throne, that he is faithful to forgiveness. We ask for forgiveness. We receive prayer from whoever, or we pray to God and ask for forgiveness. And then in our weakest moments, our weakest temptations, we do it again. We sin again. And some of us get stuck in that pattern where we need, we need help. We need counseling. We need somebody to come alongside us. We need an accountability person to say, this is where my weakness is. This is where I struggle. And this is what I need you to be praying for me. We need our brothers and sisters to be praying for us. If we don't do that, then here's what happens. We find ourselves sinning over and over and over and over again. And I promise you that if that's you or you're listening online, I promise you, you're that person that struggles with guilt. You're saved. Jesus died on that cross for your name. That blood drop had your name on it on the sand. But you don't feel, you don't feel whole because you find yourself falling into that sin. You with me? And this is what Satan waits to use. The other thing that Satan loves to do with this is that it's people that go through the motions, they ask for forgiveness. They come up here on an altar call. They, they get saved again. They do whatever. They go get baptized at the pool, whatever. They use every reason they can to make themselves feel a little bit better. But the truth is they're living in a lifestyle of sin, and they know it. And so they do everything exterior to try to make themselves feel get better. But at the end of the day, guilt 
is like cancer. It riddles them from the inside out. This is how Satan uses guilt in a bad way in a believer's life. You with me? And so if that's you, come and see one of us pastors. Call the office. We are all about restoration in this church. We are all about believing in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are all about changed lives in this church. There is not one person that is holy enough, religious enough, good enough, or ties enough money to convince me otherwise. We are here by the grace of God, and if God's called you here, it's because the redemptive work of Jesus Christ has, you are, you're a trophy. You are his trophy. And so God want, God doesn't desire for any of us to have sin. God doesn't desire for any of us to live in guilt as well. You with me? Now I gotta go fast. So that's what we see in verse 21. Hear me out. Joseph's brothers are riddled with this guilt and they believe they are being punished for the sin that they committed against Joseph. You remember back in chapter 37, none of the brothers agreed with the way Joseph was being handled. Not all the brothers were on the same page. There were some brothers there that were like, kill him, do this, throw him in a cistern well, you know, trade him and all this. There were some brothers that were very quiet. They were not in agreement with this and yet they're yoked into this whether they liked it or not, because he didn't tell the truth to their father. Look at verse 22. One of them, one brother, Reuben, Reuben replied, and he's telling this to his brothers. Now, this is in front of Joseph. This is cool. Didn't I tell you not to what? Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an account for his blood. Let me read to you in Genesis 37, that very scene, verse 21, it's up on the screen. When who? Reuben heard this, their plans. He tried to rescue Joseph from their hands. He said, let's not take his life. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. And Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. Look down at verse 23. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. And when Joseph heard this, look at verse 24. He turned away from them and he began to what? He began to weep. But then came back and spoke to them again. He had Simon take from them and bound before their eyes. Verse 25, Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and get this, to put each man's silver back in his sack and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. Verse 27, at this, play, at this place where they stopped for one night, one of them opened up his sack to get feed for his donkey and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned. And he said to his brothers, here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank and they turned to each other trembling and said, what is this that God has done to us? And, and, and I believe that this is a test that Joseph did. And I believe that Joseph placed his silver back in their sacks along with the grain so that he could truly see if they would pass the test of trust. And he knew, number one, that they would be back because their brother's held in prison. Number two, they're gonna run out of grain and need more and they're gonna come back. And number three, he instructed them to bring Benjamin, didn't he? 
or the younger brother. And so he knew they would be back. And so this was a way of testing what they would do. And he wanted to see if these brothers were the same family he left or if it was a new family, people changed and he could trust them and he could restore his relationship with them once and for all. And with this said, I want you to understand forgiveness and trust are not one of the same, is it? Those of you that have been hurt before, you know biblically that we are called to forgive and the Lord certainly helps us in this process. And it is a process. Forgiveness is a process. You don't just turn the light switch off. You're forgiven. Boop. There's a whole lot of heart. There's a whole lot of soul. There's a whole lot of healing that needs to happen. But God does command us to forgive. Nowhere in the Bible do we see, though, where God commands us to trust. The only times that we see God in the Bible command us to trust is that he asks us to trust him and him alone. You know this verse, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. If you know it, say it out loud with me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. And so we see that Joseph's brothers went home and he shared with their father all that happened and then they ran out of grain and they have to come back just as they had said. They had obeyed Joseph and they brought back their little brother Benjamin. Now turn very quickly as we close. Chapter 43, verse 20. Next chapter, 43, verse 20. And we're gonna see if Joseph's brothers passed this test. Verse 20 They've been invited into the house. Joseph isn't quite home yet, but they kill a calf and they're gonna have this big dinner because Joseph's been told that his brothers are back. And so now he's inviting them into his personal home. And they're getting a little nervous here because remember, they're guilty and they're nervous. And he says, we beg your pardon, our Lord, they said. We came down here the first time to buy food, but, it, but at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks and each of us found his silver. Is that truth or a lie? Truth. The exact weight in the mouth of his sack. So we have brought it back with us and we have also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put our silver in the sacks. You know what encourages me? I think they're starting to change. I don't think we can judge a book by our high school cover. I think that this is a test that they passed for Joseph. Now, how important is that for Joseph right now at this moment? Very. Remember, he's at the crossroads of forgiveness or trust or both. Look what the housekeeper said in verse 23. It's all right, he said. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. Now skip quickly down to verse 27. Now Joseph is home. And now he's sitting at this table, this banquet table, just him and his brothers. Verse 27 says, and Joseph asked his brothers how they were. And then he said, how is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? And they replied, your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed down, prostrating themselves before him. As he, look, as he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, this, remember this is the first time, now remember he was 17 years old when he left, so his little brother Benjamin was probably a little tyke, probably could hardly walk. Look what he says. 
He saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, and he asked, is this our youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Verse 30, deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. And after he had washed his face and came out and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. And I think, I think what's important here at this point of the story is, is that although bro- Joseph's brothers did him wrong and a great amount of time has passed, we see that God was still working on Joseph's heart. God was healing Joseph from family hurts. Remember, Joseph has no idea that his family would come in need of food. One day he looks up and there stands all his brothers. Think of the emotions that he felt. Think of what went through his head. Maybe it was forgive him or let him go. Live or reject. Give them their request or close the chapter once and for all. And I believe that because God had shown Joseph a preview of this very thing through his dream that God had prepared him. Remember it said what? He remembered his dream. And I believe that gave him hope. And I believe that encouraged him to go out of his way to treat his brothers well and to hope that they too change and that God would honor that kindness and that love and that woundedness that God was in the process of healing in Joseph. And he treated him well. He saw his little brother and he wasn't little anymore. And he probably realized at that moment how much of his family's life he missed out on. And I think it was a very surreal moment for him But I will say this, without God working out the healing in Joseph's heart, this story would end very differently. Last point I want you to write down on the screen tonight before we leave this place is, we must first bring our hearts before the Lord for healing before we expect others to do the same. I think if you're in a, relationship that's turned turmoil or if you're estranged in any relationship at all I think the takeaway of this is is that there's no doubt God loved Joseph there's no doubt that Joseph loved God but I do believe that in order for this family restoration to happen I believe Joseph had to be the bigger person I believe that Joseph had to be the one that said, God, heal my hurts, heal my wounds. I want to honor you, and I'm going to forgive them no matter what they've done. Trust will come, right? Trust will come. It's a process. But I think because Joseph was so obedient to the Lord, we're going to see in God's plan part three when we come back in two weeks for this, you're going to see that that's exactly what God did. Last thing I wanted to point out in verse 33 in your Bibles. This is really cool. The men had been seated before him in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. You know what that tells me? Joseph was also having a sense of humor. He had fun with it. What are the odds that all 11 brothers are lined up in the order of their age. Can you imagine what they're thinking? This, this would never happen. And, and, and it caught their attention, didn't it? 
And I think Joseph was having fun. Again, he wasn't, he, he didn't hate him. He loved him. He longed for that brotherly love and that brotherly relationship. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you uh, tonight for, um, maybe for all we know, Holy Spirit, you only know, maybe a timely message for someone that's maybe listening online or maybe even here. Maybe you've been taking them through this process of this series and you've been speaking and we're so thankful that you do. And God, we thank you that you've taken nuggets out of Joseph's life and we can just apply it to us, Lord. Lord, most of all, how forever grateful we are that we don't have to walk in guilt. Your word says that you cast our sins as far as the east to the west and you remember them no more. Only God could do that. Lord, we remember things that maybe we wish we don't remember, difficult times, hurts, letdowns. Lord, we remember those, but you don't remember it. When we let you down, when we sin against you, you don't remember. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that we come to him and he's just and faithful to forgive us. Lord, if there's anybody here that maybe their heart's burdened and they do walk in that guilt, Lord, we just ask that by the Holy Spirit that you would free them of that. God, if there's anything on their part that they need to do or something that we talked about tonight, we pray that you give them the boldness to step into something new and to obey you in such a way. We thank you that we're a church here in this community that we can help people get from where you've brought them in and take them to where you want them to be. We thank you for your mercy tonight. We thank you for your grace tonight. And most of all, we thank you for your love tonight. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. I personally thank this entire congregation for how alive they are. God, your Holy Spirit is moving in a mighty way. You're changing lives. You are setting fires ablaze on the hearts of your people here. We're forever grateful. And I pray that for this holiday, for Thanksgiving coming up, I pray that you would bless them. I pray that you would be with them. I pray that if they're with family, that they would enjoy family. I pray that if there's, if there's doors that need to be opened to heal and restore family, what a better time in, in any time of the year is during the holidays. Lord, we, know, we don't need to be fearful to restore relationships. We just need to look to you to show us how to do it. We thank you for, for your strength. We thank you for your love. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel Sebastian podcast channel. If this message impacted your life, we encourage you to share it with a friend. We're located at 1251 Sebastian Boulevard, just northeast of intersection 90th Avenue and State Road 512 in Sebastian, Florida. Our service times are Saturday evening at 6 p.m., Sunday morning at 